Good morning. It's great to have you here. Last night, the Royals were playing during both of our services. And so it was always tempting to wonder who's looking at their smartphone or who's looking at their Bible on their iPad. Uh, we won't have that issue. Congratulations, Royals. And um, I remember during the 645 service, the game was coming to a close. And so I said, if someone does find that out, just stand up and go, hallelujah, if they won. Uh, no one did that, thankfully. Hey, we are coming up on our uh, last message on the book of First Thessalonians, and I've really in- enjoyed this time of study of God's Word as we get into God's Word to understand what it means so that we can apply it not only uh, to our lives, but in our world that God has called us. And up to this point, we've talked about those three words that kind of just outline this whole book that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. First word was faith. We talked about a faith that was, first of all, received. Faith is not just an ideology, it's a way of life. And it's something that we all must understand, that it's something we receive. We make a response towards what Christ has done for us on the cross. And we trust in his work. We stop trying to do things that please uh, God to, to the point that we think he owes us salvation. We, try, we, we stop trying to do things and we start trusting what, in what has already been done in Christ. But once you've received that faith, it's a faith that should be shared then, not something that that would be just kept to yourself. And boy, you heard it through our announcements, right? We want to be people who are giving Christ to everyone in our lives. It's not just keep it to ourselves so that the gospel doesn't dead end in our lives. Then we talked about love and we talked about a passionate love for God and for others and a love that was pure, one that wasn't focused on lust to give, to get, but to love, to, to, to give, to show up and give rather than expect people to give. Uh, and then hope. We looked at an informed hope, a hope that is ready for the return of Christ and a hope now that's engaged. Boy, it's important to be engaged, to not be neutral towards hope, right? And I've got a question for you, one that I want to start out with, uh, and how important it is to be engaged. Think about the car you learned how to drive, the first car in your life that you learned to drive on. Every family has one, uh, but I want you to think about the make and model of that car and one unique thing about that car and talk to the person next to you about that. And yes, you can talk to them. They won't bite. Talk about the make and model and one unique thing about the car you learned how to drive. Go ahead. I said one thing, one thing about that car, right? For me, it was a Jeep CJ7. And it was, uh, I was 14 and a half and it was illegal. And I'm sorry, it was in northern Wisconsin where no one was around. And I learned how to drive a Jeep. It was my brother's Jeep. And I thought it was awesome. It had that fabric top. It rolled back. And uh, I could let my hair, when I had it, I let my hair blow in it. And I had a great time in it. But one thing about it, it was, it was manual transmission. And I know if you were born from 1995 on, you don't know anything about manual transmission. But it was something where you had to do the shifting. 
And I remember it. There'd always be something when I was learning is I didn't engage the clutch right. And so I would lurch like that when I would start out, stall the car and have to start up again. My greatest fear was to be on an incline. Those of you who grew up, you know what we're talking about. I prayed for a third leg to keep it on on the on the brake. But over time, I got used to engaging that clutch so that I could rev it and then engage it and then move so the car wouldn't move, kind of use it as a brake in itself. But you know, it doesn't matter how big the engine of your car was. It doesn't matter where, even where you want to go. It doesn't even matter your experience as a driver. If you can't engage the clutch, if you aren't engaged, you're going nowhere. And you know, hope is the very same thing. If hope is something we just talk about in this room, we're going to do a lot of revving up in this room, but we're not going to be engaging the world out there. We're not going to be engaged with hope. And Paul is saying, look, get ready. It's an imminent return of Jesus Christ. It could happen at any time. So don't stay neutral to this in your life. Be engaged. Advance the kingdom of God through each of our lives. And so that's what I want to talk to you about. Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Would you turn in your Bibles to that place? Because what he's going to do, he's going to craft a hope that's engaged. You know what? It doesn't matter how much you know about the scripture. It doesn't matter how long you've been in a church or your family background or position of leadership. If you are not living engaged in hope on a daily basis, you're growing nowhere. You're not growing and so Paul is going to craft that, invi- that, that vision for an engaged hope. And he's going to use four values that kind of rise to the surface that, to be honest, are priceless. And if I would interview you once I show you these, you'd long for. And when you have them, you never want to get rid of them. And when you don't, you're longing for them. And so Paul is going to raise these to our surface. And let's take a look at them. First Thessalonians 5, beginning with verse 12. It says this. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. I connected it with that verse, the verses in front of it. But the key word that I see here is to be at peace. An engaged hope brings peace to your life. And the two principles that Paul calls us to is when we are respecting one another and when we're honoring one another in love. These work in every relationship we're in. Every marriage that is healthy and thriving gives respect and honors in love. Every place that you serve, every place you're involved, if you're a leader, if you're a follower, when there is respect and when there is love, usually there is health and there is peace, as Paul kind of brings up here. Paul's going to apply this to the local church, to the church and how we follow leadership in a church. And he's going to call us to respect those whom are leading us. And this has to do, when we think about respecting, we cannot demand respect from someone. You can't go, respect me. Some of us as parents like to say, just respect me. Stop this bickering and respect. But in order for there to be peace, someone has to say, okay, I'll respect you. Someone has to show up thinking about how they can be sensitive to you. Thinking about what they're thinking about you. Thinking and and, and praying about how they're acting, how they're talking and their willingness to follow your lead. That has to happen in the local church. Did you realize that? That has to happen for us to give respect to those who are leading us. 
Do you know we have a leadership structure where no one person is the person of leadership? We have a board of elders in this church. In other words, even me, when I'm up here, I submit to the board of elders and I respect each one of those men and I look at honoring each one of them in love. It's important that we all do this because for a church to have peace, we must have respect and love. Now, what kind of leadership should this leadership be? Well, it should model Jesus. That's the short answer. Then we have to ask the other question. How did Jesus lead? He's the greatest leader who ever lived. And I want to follow the lead of Jesus. How did he lead? Well, when his disciples, when he was on earth, were bickering about leadership, when they were saying, who's going to be the greatest? You know, when the kingdom comes, what job will we have? Who will be there? You, me, you, me. Jesus says, and this is my paraphrase in Luke 22, stop it. Stop it. Don't lead like this world. This world leads so that whoever's leading is the main beneficiary, is, is in the greatest power and is the greatest position. And boy, if you live in this world and you work in this world, you know whatever field it is, education, politics, business, whatever it is, law, where it's all about getting power, it's all about position. But Jesus says in Matthew twenty two twenty six, not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and let the leader as the one who serves. So Jesus crafted a servant leadership perspective on how we lead. And here's the reality. Any place I've ever served where there have been servant leaders, I had no problem respecting them. Any place that led with the heart of Jesus, I, I didn't have any problem of honoring them in love. So we long to be in an environment where we're giving respect. But then, secondly, we're honoring in love. It says that, that we esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. How do you live at peace and honor in love? Well, you pray for those who lead you. Do you realize it's one of the greatest things we can do for one another, especially if we're leading on a team together, is that you would pray for the people on your team. That God would keep their hearts pure. That God would keep a vision that's clear of the gospel. That God would keep us away from error and guide us in truth. Do you know we can encourage them? Encouraging is so important. There's so much work in Christian ministry that's discouraging. And we're called to encourage one another, build each other up. We can bless them where we pray a blessing over them or encourage them through words that bless them. We can support and we can resist tearing them down. We can resist being critical of them. That's an important, important aspect of how peace operates in all of our relationship. Where there is respect and there is love, you will have peace. Can I just ask a question real quickly? You know, fellowship has made uh, multiple changes over the past several years. We've asked you to sack and advance through your church. Is there anything in your life right now that you're holding against the leadership of the church? Anything that you're holding against even leadership outside the church that, that has robbed you from the desire to respect and honor and love? I think it's good at a time like this when you spend time in the scriptures like this and away from the distractions. If God brings someone... Or something to mind where you just go, God, that's robbed me. I've, 
I've let that rob me of giving respect or honoring love. I've torn them down, and I really didn't catch it. I've been kind of blind to that. I call it venting. But, but really, I need to take care of that. I need to be in a place where I can respect and love the leadership around me. But it's a thing to just respond to right now. Take care of with God through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because God longs for a hope that's engaged in all of us that brings peace to our lives. Secondly, let's keep reading. Look at verse 14. It says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. And here's the qualifying phrase. Be patient with them all. That's the second value that engaged hope brings us is it brings patience and it brings patience with three different types of people that Paul says, be patient. You know, and you think about hope. Hope is all about a future, isn't it? When we think about it, it's not just a trophy we put on ourselves and uh, on a shelf in our lives and say, aha, we have the hope of Jesus. No, it's a, it's a hope that we hold, that we live with and we look forward to. It's trusting God's timing because we look forward to the return of Christ and then we wait patiently for that return. You think about patience, how that trusts God with his timing. Look at this. Who, who are we called to trust God's timing with inside of the church? There's three groups of people that Paul calls out here. The idle, the anxious, and the weak. And he says, what do you do with the idle? He asks us to warn the idle. What are we, who are the idle people? And, and what, is their li- what do their lives look like? Well, in the Greek, this word literally means a soldier that's out of step with formation. And so they're marching to the beat of a different drum or they're not engaged or they're on the sidelines when they ought to be in the battle. And Paul is saying, warn them, warn them. That's this pretty strong word to say. But literally what he's saying is tell them what they're missing. Tell them what they're missing, an opportunity, call them, get them back in line. And that's one of the roles that I have as a pastor. And it's not a great and glamorous role. It's to call people who are watching God do something to get into the game of what God is doing. Because here's the reality. The more I watch, the more over time I start to criticize and I start to disconnect with what God is doing. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you were very involved in whether it was fellowship or a church before fellowship or an environment earlier. You were in the game. You were active. You were involved. But somehow when you came here, you just looked around and you go, wow, it doesn't look like they need help around here. There's always someone greeting me with a smile. It doesn't look like they need any help. And so therefore you move back into the background. And if you're not intentional of our listening or getting engaged, it's real easy for you to move from the bench to you to move to the back row and move from a place of engagement to disengagement and from an area of encouragement to an area of criticism. I do that. If I'm not engaged, I tend to go critical in the environments if I stick around long enough. And you know what? We can say, Joe, come on, larger organizations, the 20% doing 80% of the work, that actually works in all organizations, large or small. 20% do 80% of the work. But the reality is, folks, we would not put up with this in politics. If our economy had an 80% unemployment rate, we would fire everyone and vote new ones in for the hope of employment. 
but yet we tolerate it in environments like the church. If you've been here and you've just kind of been watching, it's, it's, it's now time to admonish you to get engaged. Get into, move from idleness to action and live the hope that you have. Because here's the deal. It's rare that you'll grab a hold of hope when you're disengaged. So get in the game. Secondly, the anxious. What are we called to do with the anxious? Well, it says encourage. Encourage the faint-hearted. And, and basically, those who worry, those who are anxious, those who fear, so that moves them to a place of despair. In other words, no hope. And a no-hope life is tends to be into a swirl of disengagement. Why did the... Church in Thessalonica struggle with this. Well, literally, Paul, we see in Acts 17, runs for his life because he was persecuted in this town. His life was going to be taken from him. He ran away. And they were in affliction. They were suffering for their faith. And so there were some who were really afraid of believing in Christ. Of those who had came to Christ, but then or their loved ones was arre- were arrested. Or, or they per- personally were being persecuted. Wouldn't you fear, if your faith was on a line, of you being physically hurt and persecuted? Yes, we all would. And the church right now outside of the United States that is persecuted in these environments, they do fear. And Paul says, come alongside them and encourage them. But we don't deal with being anxious. We live in the United States. We have so much more than everyone else. We shouldn't fear anything. We have a pretty good military, best in the world. We have a really pretty stable economy compared to the rest of the world. We shouldn't fear. You have no reason. We are strong in ourselves. No, no, no. If you would look at the number one diagnosis... In junior high, in high school, in college, in everyone, it's fear. We deal with anxiety issues all over the place. And if they're dealt in isolation, you're going to be disengaged from hope. That's why the church is called to come alongside those in their worst moment of fear and anxiousness and come along and say, let me encourage you. I'm with you. Remember, the number one command of Scripture is do not fear. Why? Because I am with you. Earlier, Paul said in this book, he said, and so we will always be with the Lord. Life, death, nothing to fear. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We need people to remind us that. You realize it's one of the reasons we get gathered together is to encourage one another, who especially encourage those who are anxious. And then help the weak. Who do, are the weak? And basically, Paul is saying those who fall at times of temptation. Those who would like to live for Christ, but find themselves falling to sin, privately or publicly. And he asks implicitly in this statement, should the church be for only the strong or for the weak? And he says, no, everyone, everyone. You don't dress yourself up and get to church once you've cleaned up your act and that makes you acceptable in a room like this. No, I know that many, if not all of us, are, have areas in our lives that we are weak in, that we need help. And the church is here to come alongside and give a help and a hope to everyone through Jesus Christ. We're called to do this. Now, look at the guiding phrase. 
he said, be patient with them all. Now, I've been in ministry for 20 years, and I can tell you, I can list people who have really frustrated me. And some are idle, some are fearful, and some are just plain weak. And there's a tendency, especially if you view yourself as stronger, to criticize the weak. And if you have, it's easy, like even if there's a bunch of babies around you, to be sick and tired of doing diapers all day. You just want everyone to grow up, okay? And I know the heart of parents when your child is like that. But here's the qualifying phrase. Folks, we have to trust that God is at work in his church. And I have to trust that God is at work in you. And sometimes there's some resistance within you to the work of God. And I have to trust that over time, it's better for you to stay with us for the opportunity of the gospel advancing in your life and the goodness of God advancing and the character of God advancing in your life rather than to say, leave. Okay? Because in all these, it's easy to say, hey, get on board. Just get on board. Or, or... Stop being afraid or grow up. But Paul says, be patient with them all. Keep calling the idle. Keep encouraging the anxious and keep helping the weak. But be patient in doing that. And as you do that, you live that hope. You trust God with people. Here's what happens when you start doing that. Guess what? You trust the work of God in people more than you trust your work. In the lives of people. And to be quite honest. Our hope is in the Lord. Which means that you're much better in God's hands than you are in mine. And I have to trust. And it's my prayer that if some of you have just been watching. And waiting. And looking at ministry. It's my prayer every. Pretty much every day. That you would engage the God of the universe. Who wants to use you to advance his kingdom. And for those of you who fear and are frustrated and and just are overwhelmed, it's my fear someday that hope would be so strong in you that you would realize you didn't have to fear. And for those who keep struggling with the same sin that even frustrates you, why am I continuing to do this? It's my prayer and patience and hope in the Lord that someday you will trust God more than trusting yourself with that sin. Hope engaged brings patience. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 15. It says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone, literally inside and outside of your church. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Look at this. What what Paul is going to call us to beyond uh Peace and patience is persistence. And I get this basically from the word that follows these three values of joy, prayer, and thanksgiving. Let's look at them. It says with joy, he says, rejoice always. That's a persistent joy through all circumstances. And to be persistent in that, this is, by by the way, the smallest verse of the Bible in word count but it packs perhaps the greatest punch in your life in the area of hope, if we could follow it. What does it look like to be joyful? What is joy? Is it hype? Well, sometimes rejoicing is hype. Like when the Royals beat the Orioles for the second time on their turf. Woo! Hallelujah, you may say. And that is to rejoice. 
But what if they lost? Cricket. That's not rejoicing. That's called cursing. And can you still have joy when things don't work out your way? And Paul says, yes, rejoice always. K. Arthur, the K. Arthur, not K. Arthur, K. Warren, excuse me, the wife of Rick Warren from Saddleback Church out in California has had a horrible two years. Her son, right after the weekend of, uh, of Easter uh, 2012, committed suicide. And for a couple in ministry, for their son to commit suicide, especially someone in the national spotlight, is devastating. And she's never been a woman who had hype in her life. She wasn't like her husband who was type A and driven and had a personality that just loved a room full of people. She was a quiet person, one-on-one. She always wondered, can I have hope even though I don't have hype in my life? And as she navigated the loss of her son, this is what she wrote. She said, I found that joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. Joy is a confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. And joy is the determined choice to praise God in every situation. Do you see that? Every situation. It's a choice. Rejoice. Rejoice. Secondly, prayer. Prayer is another thing we need to be persistent in. And he says here, without ceasing, without ceasing. In other words, what he's saying is there's never a moment when you cannot or should not pray. Pray, Prayer should be our first thought, not our last act. Pray. You know, our world basically says, really try. Give it your best shot. And if that doesn't work, call on God. Okay. Cause God only helps those who are really in need and don't bother him. Just, you know, he gave you a mind. He gave you an ability. You do it and then ask God if that's not enough. And what really what Paul is saying is pray without ceasing. That's, that's basically we keep God on the back shelf. You know, he's our insurance policy rather than our life. We're called to be life with God. And so prayer needs to be our first thought, not our last. So when you go through a difficult time or when you go through a very good time, we're called to be people who pray. This is really important for me as a pastor to have prayer. And I know it's a slow pitch. You go, of course, we pay you to pray, you know. But the reality is, is I want my life to be authentic. I don't want it to be a job description. I really want to be the man who's consistent with the word and my and teaching. And so to be a man of prayer, I've had to learn how to be a man of prayer. The same distractions you have, I've had in my life. We all have to navigate. Are we going to worry first? Or are we going to pray first? And uh, I've uh, tried to make myself available out in the lobby after each, each service. And earlier in my ministry, I just remember when someone would go, Joe, I'm going through this. This happened in my life. This is just horrendous. And I don't know what to do. I would go, wow, oh, that is so How do you live the next moment with that reality? I am so sorry. And I'd go home and I'd be burdened. And and as our church grew, the burden would grow larger. And I would feel, what are you going to do, Joe, to minister to them? They need you to be there. And our church grew larger. And then the capacity for me to do that grew smaller. And I would just worry. And I really came to an emotional breakdown in my life because I was trying to carry it. And to bear the, be the hope of this church, to be quite honest with you. You know, the greatest thing I can do for you is to pray for you. 
It's the greatest thing for me to trust you in the hope of God and in the hands of God. And so instead of it being the last thought as a pastor, it's become my first thought. So when you share with someone and I get the temptation to go, wow, what are you going to let's pray? Can I pray for you? Because and I trust you in the hands of God and you're much better in his hands than you are in mine. And prayer needs to be that practice. It celebrates that we must be persistent. We must fight against the temptation to overly bear the burdens of yourself or others and coming to Jesus like he asked us to do and cast your anxiety, cast your cares. Let him take your burden, which he's meant to be in our lives. And then Thanksgiving. Wow, don't we need this? You think that we would be so thankful to God because of how he's blessed our country, how he's blessed your lives. He's given you not only uh, most of us a home to live in and food to have. Everyone looks like at least they're paying attention and you've eaten this morning. And so that's been taken care of. But even the next breath of our lives to be thankful for in every circumstance, because here it is, the, the mean And the default switch for us is discontentment. Discontentment with our jobs, discontentments in our family, discontentment with our friends, discontentment, of course, with our sports team and with, if they're not the Royals, or or anyone else. And then you bring it to church with you and you're discontent here. And here Paul says, no, to be a hopeful group of people, we have to be people who are thankful in all circumstances. So don't be a spreader of despair. Be persistent with thankfulness. It's the prescription for discontent. If you think something's not fair, if you think something, you know, you're discontent with something, what's, how do you get your, you thank the Lord. You thank people for small acts that build you up into larger acts. You're discontent in your marriage. You thank your spouse for the good that you do see. Because it builds up a repertoire, the experience. And by being persistent in good times and bad, look out. With thanksgiving, you become a thankful person that's engaged in hope. Keep reading. Look at verse 19. It says, And do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. We have peace. We have patience. We have persistence. Here's purity. Paul's calling us to the pure truth of Jesus and his word. And as the church navigated through people coming to them saying, God told me to do this or we must do this. God appeared to me and said this. Paul said, watch out, test prophecy amongst you. And he even crafted, did it match with Jesus's teaching? And did when, when anyone comes with a prophecy from man, it has to match with the, with the commands of Jesus. And even they even broadened that to those who had spent time with Jesus and saw him as eyewitness of his life, his death and resurrection. The original apostles, they had the authority of the of the scriptures of revelation from God. And so we, they were the, even the early church was called to submit to that teaching first. And everything had to be consistent with it. And he would basically said, discard evil. Uh, literally ab- abstain from every form of evil. Don't despise. Don't despise prophecy, but learn to discern it. Be careful to test them against the pattern of Christ. Because here, just like then, now... 
It's easy for us to say, I'd like to think that God is. And we base this on who we want God to be and how we want to live versus who God really is in the scriptures and how he calls us to live. And we need to learn and discern the scriptures in our lives because there's always something in the scriptures that's going to mess with my life. There is. We've got to get used to that. We tend to view God as someone who goes, uh, you know, just the permissive, insecure father who says, you want to go do that? Just go do that. I'll support you. You got me. And really, we have a heavenly father who loves us far more than we'll ever know. But who's also truth and righteousness. And just. And whom we're accountable to. He loves us completely, even as he knows everything about us, chooses us to love, chooses to love us anyway. So we need to understand what evil is in our lives and discard it. But we also need to hold on to what is good. Literally hold fast to the good. So as you discern truth in your life, there's going to be counterfeit. And, and you need to learn how to turn from the counterfeit to the reality of the truth. Can I ask you real quickly, is there anything... From the truth of God's word. Is there anything in your life that's robbing you from the purity of God's truth? Is there anything just in the back or in the front of your mind? To go, I'm living out of of obedience to that. You know, as God reminds you of that as you go to before God's word, it's it's time for you to go, whoa, I got to discard that so I can cling to the goodness of God in my life. Now, let's put these back up on the screen because a hope engaged brings peace and patience, persistence and purity. If you have these things, guess what? Your chances are you're living with this hope. You are living with this hope. And when you are a person who trusts God in your relationships, guess what? You're going to respect and you're going to love. And that result is peace. When you're a, God, when a person who's trusting God in his timing to work and to transform in other people's lives, not just your own, you're going to develop patience. When you're someone who is joyful and looking for opportunities to pray and, and even to be thankful, guess what? Persistence and is, is going to be there. Your, your hope is going to be played out in every one of these values. So... What I want you to realize is this is the work of God in your lives. This is what God wants to do in all of us. He wants us to have a hope that's engaged, that's living, looking forward to his return and living every moment with the hope we have in Christ. So what I want to do as we close our time in the word is I want everyone to stand, if you don't mind. And I want to pray a blessing over you, which are literally the words of Paul to his church in Thessalonica, the church he started and the church that he was concerned about. And he wondered if they were they were surviving. And Timothy gave him the report, Paul, they're thriving. And so this was his prayer to them. This is what he called out of them in response to a faith, a love and a hope that they had in Christ. And I want to pray this for you. And as you receive this, make your life available for an engaged hope that moves from this room out into a world that is in despair without Jesus. You have that hope. Live that hope.
And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.